Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Casual Criminalist Show. I, as always, I'm your host Simon and in this one, well, Callum has put us together a script. I was particularly interested in this because I think I saw a CSI episode back in the day where they couldn't identify who the criminal was because it was two twins. And I was like, well, yeah, that's a nice story, but it never actually happens, except it totally did. I will warn you up front that this casual criminalist, I don't believe it contains any murder. I don't think they murdered anyone. So if you tune in for murder, as I know many of you do, well, you're going to be slightly disappointed today at that. But I hope that this story and how wild it is makes up for that. Anyway, thank you to Callum for putting today's script together. If you're new here, what happens is uh, I will read Callum's script. I might occasionally throw in some of my own thoughts and uh, we'll just crack on with it, shall we? They're partners in crime. If you have brothers or sisters around your own age, I'll bet your parents described you like that at some point. They were probably joking about the time you and your brother were caught feeding crayons to the dog or nabbing a few extra sweets from the kitchen cupboard. But there are plenty of siblings out there for whom the phrase is much more literal. Actual partners in crime who work together in their criminal careers. Yeah, uh, most famously... The Cray brothers, uh, at least in the UK, were these famous criminal... I don't think they were twins, but they were just brothers. My nan, I believe, if this wasn't a story that she elaborated, which wasn't very much in her character, the woman who lived, who was her neighbour, used to be married to one of the Cray twins. Not in London. She had obviously moved away somewhere or something like that. They didn't get along and she had a very ostentatious car. And yeah, so that's an interesting story. I don't actually know if it's true, but uh, why are we talking about the craze? Let's get back to the video. Although, to be honest, I wouldn't trust my brother or sister to change a light bulb. Never mind back me up at a bank heist. I don't know. I, I have to say, if I was thinking of people to commit crimes with, I'd be like, yeah, you know, family are probably not going to screw me over. That's probably, you know... People, people who are least likely to screw you over. Anyway, but if you, I'm not, I'm thinking about robbing any banks, all right? <laughs> but if you both, unless this career goes down the tubes, then I'll be like, I've got a lifestyle to sustain now. <laughs> I got that podcast money. <laughs> but if you both have a talent for crime, it makes sense to pair up. Your partner is much less likely to rat you out to the cops when you share a mum who will give you both a smack on the ear for your trouble. So pop culture and world news alike are filled with tales of sibling crooks wreaking havoc and making their fortunes. And the most intriguing ones of all are the most difficult cases to solve, those involving twins. Without saying too much too early, that's the kind of story I have for you today. And I'm sorry, Callum, I realize in my sort of pre-intro intro, I already gave away because I like to tell people I came up with the idea for the video. And in a slight departure from our recent episodes on grisly murders and disappearances, today we're going to take a look at a good old-fashioned heist story. It's a story with enough Hollywood-worthy details to give all you screenwriters out there Richie fingers. Stylish entry. Check. Multi-million euro haul. Check. Final act twist. Oh, check. Get your notepads at the ready because this is some Hollywood gold. Without further ado, here's the story of the 2009 heist of Kafhaus des Westens. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I believe it's German. 
Kaffhaus sounds super German. For those of you whose GCSE German is a bit rusty, yes, it is German. Great. Kaufhaus translates to department store, and Kaufhaus to Westerns, or Kadowa for short, is one of the most prestigious in Europe. It's located on the west side of Berlin and has been an icon of luxury consumption since its construction in 1907. After taking a battering during World War II, the symbol of Berlin wealth was reborn again in the post-war era, right at the heart of the west-of-the-wall consumer culture. These Berliners must have gripped their communist manifestos in fury as they peered through binoculars and watched 50,000 daily visitors walk out with bags full of fur coats and diamonds. Look at them with their Walkmans and blue jeans. Disgraceful. I think probably most people in East Berlin were like, this communism thing kind of sucks. <laughs> Let's lose that communist manifesto, eh? Of course, Kadawa needed a lot of room to accommodate that many decadent Western dogs and frivolous bourgeoisie goods. The seven-story neoclassical building was built with over 650,000 square feet of shop space, second in Europe only to Harrods in London. Yet yeah, Harrods is absolutely surprisingly massive. Nowadays, it's still going strong selling everything from clothing to homeware to jewelry. Some pretty darn expensive jewelry, for that matter. Which is exactly what three mysterious individuals were looking to get their hands on as they scaled the outside of the building in the early hours of January the 25th, 2009. It was a Sunday morning, in the early hours before dawn. It would be a fair while yet before Kadawa opened its doors. I'm sure Germans, if there are any Germans listening to this, they're like, Kadawa, <laughs> that's not how we say it, Simon. <laughs> oh god, never mind. And the staff who would greet them were mostly still sound asleep in bed. The only workers on site were the overnight security guards sat in a room with monitors cycling through the whole expanse of the massive store. If they had been watching one particular camera feed in those early hours, they would have seen something strange. A knotted rope ladder descending down from the top of the screen. As it came to a rest, dangling above the floor, the figure of a masked man came sliding down it, and then another and another. Security cameras never picked up much audio, but we have to assume that at least one of these low-tech Tom Cruises was humming the Mission Impossible theme. I'll stop. That's James Bond, isn't it? How's Mission Impossible go? All I, it starts with that uh, psh, the burning of the, 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 the string. Psh, I don't know. Let's move on. No one's here to listen to me hum the Mission Impossible theme. Even if it were Mr. Tom Cruise himself, it'd be impossible to tell. Their faces were completely obscured by ski masks, and each man wore gloves to eliminate the risk of leaving fingerprints. These guys are actually seeming pretty competent compared to some other... Like, we've covered some crimes recently on The Casual Criminalist. Where it's like, really, guys? <laughs> that was your master plan? You just didn't want to wear a mask? Now, at this point, the security guards hadn't spotted the peculiar activity going on down in the jewelry department, but surely they would soon. The entire area was rigged with motion sensors, which were armed every night when the shop doors closed. Surely only a highly trained acrobat could slip through unnoticed. Well, it seems not. This reminds me of that entrapment movie with Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones, where they're, like, dancing through all the lasers. And it's a cool scene, but it's also like, that's not realistic, is it? <laughs> Rather than backflipping over lasers and swinging from chandeliers, these three burly men just moved carefully. They picked their routes along the rows of display cabinets with extreme caution. It seemed like they knew exactly where the motion sensors were set up, and they already had safe routes all mapped out in their heads. Touché, robbers. 
Touche. These canny criminals found the spot they were looking for, a jewelry boutique named Christ. Okay, they went about prying open the display cases and filling their swag bags with some of the most expensive gems and watches in the entire store. Again, they did this with enough care that no alarms were set off. The crooks cleared out case after case, scooping up handfuls of priceless jewelry into backpacks giving each of them a hall big enough to turn their living room into Smork's cave. But one bag was not enough. They had come this far after all, so why not help themselves to seconds? Once each had filled his first, he climbed up the rope to stash his hall outside and then climbed back down for more. Ah, I'd quit when I was ahead. With the second bag full, just as silently as they came, the three men were gone. They climbed back up the ladder and disappeared from frame, disappearing into the early morning crowds as the city roused itself from sleep. It was a job well done. The same could it be said for security guards, yeah, who seemed utterly incompetent. I mean, yeah, I know there's no, you know, they, they knew where the motion sensors are. But were you guys just not looking at the right cameras or what? News reports from the day don't state who finally noticed that the rope ladder was left hanging there, but let's just assume it was one of the guards who spat his coffee over the monitor in a panic as he noticed enough empty jewelry cases to have him fired about 20 times over. Really, though, the security weren't exactly to blame. The sophisticated electronic systems which were meant to draw their attention to break-ins had been totally outwitted. So they called the police, and they arrived later that morning. They entered the looted hall to find the ladder leading up to a second-story window. It seemed the perps had scaled the outside of the building up to a stone awning and lowered themselves in after forcing a window lock open. When the losses were calculated, it was found that the three men had escaped with a total of 6 million euros. That is a mega heist, guys. This was the sort of crime that mustachioed Eurocops are born for. A diamond heist lifted straight out of Hollywood, but it likely wouldn't be an easy one to solve. It does feel like I'm reading a movie so far. With no fingerprints left at the scene and no distinguishing features on the camera, the perps looked likely to disappear to some island paradise far away for a cushy retirement. Until they were called up for the sequel, of course. Needless to say, when the papers got wind of the case later that day, it was front page news, and no wonder. I mean, in an age of Russian hackers and ransomware, isn't it a little nostalgic to see a good rendition of the classics. Just a plucky crew of thieves up against modern sensors and security cameras with nothing but their wits and a rope to rappel in on. The story of a crime that's easy to romanticize, which is one reason why it became a national media sensation. Public imagination was likewise captured by the handsome €100,000 reward offered up by the jewelry shop owner for any information which could lead to the recovery of his priceless stock. By the way, that offer is no longer on the table. All of this glamour and sensation sensationalism cemented the 2009 Kadowa heist as the most audacious and glitzy robbery in post-war German history, and also, as far as anyone could see, the perfect crime. There was a big robbery when I was at school. In I, I went to school in Kent, and there was a big robbery of a Securitas depot, which I believe is one of the biggest robberies of all time. It was way more than 9 million euros. And that thing was intense. There were police like swarming around the county for days. And then there were like bags of cash that were stolen, like found on someone's farm. And it was it was pretty wild. The break. Well, maybe not the perfect crime. See, for all of their criminal ingenuity, the three men had committed one fatal blunder. Remember how they had all been wearing gloves when they entered? Well, it turns out six gloves entered and only five gloves left. Oh, no. 
I feel like there are two people who you don't want to leave gloves behind, unless you're the police or a patient. Robbers and surgeons. That's right, one of the latex gloves lay at the bottom of the rope ladder. A Cinderella slipper left for the detectives, who promptly sent it off for analysis before probably treating themselves to a midday stein of ice beer for another job well done. The robbers couldn't claim as much. I bet when the missing glove was noticed, someone got a good slap. Yeah, can you imagine? Just getting back to wherever you, like, robber base and noticing that one of your rubber gloves is missing. You'll be like, oh, we're so screwed. <laughs> unless they don't have your DNA on file. Which, I mean, unless you've done, like, previous crimes and stuff, they probably won't. And as long as they don't catch you and then get a DNA sample from you. Or nowadays, maybe even your family with all those genealogy websites. Isn't that how they caught the Golden State Killer? Which is someone we could definitely cover on this channel. If you're interested, let me know. Had one of the men taken it off before climbing the rope. Perhaps then it had fallen out of his pocket on the way. Or maybe it had ripped as he scrambled out through the window and fluttered down to the floor. Whatever the reason, it was a pretty fatal mishap by an otherwise meticulous crew. Looking to capitalize on the blunder, the police lab techs analyzed every inch of the glove and were able to recover a sample of sweat from the inside. You might not know this, but even something as minor as a drop of sweat can be used to extract a DNA sample, which is what they did. I absolutely know this because I've watched at least one episode of CSI. This looked to become just another decidedly retro crime undone by modern investigation techniques. The age of the cat burglar is surely long gone when even one drop of sweat from their brow can directly implicate them in a crime. Well, maybe not. What I would like to see is, uh, I'm sure it's unrealistic, but rather than DNA, they'd flip open that glove and they'd find like a fingerprint from the inside on the rubber. It's probably... I guess with DNA, it's just easier and more sure. Although, as we will see, maybe not. See, when the police ran the DNA through their databases, they didn't get the results they were hoping for. That's not to say they came up empty. In fact, they had twice as much as they had expected. Two individuals on file were an exact match, a pair of identical twins. These were Abbas and Hassan O, whose last name was abbreviated in all media reporting per the German criminal justice law. With a direct DNA link to the scene for not one but two known criminals, a neat conviction now seemed like a done deal. But the German police were about to discover the hard way that sometimes less is more. Also, if you know two identical twins with the names Abbas and Hassan in Germany and the surname O, I'm betting that's a fairly limited sample set. It's not like, I don't know what the German equivalent of like John Smith or Joe Bloggs is, but it'd be like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not quite the same. The Brothers Sweaty glove in hand, the police were able to get a warrant for the brothers' arrests and picked them both up on February the 11th, 2009, a little over two weeks after they had plundered the store. But had they? I mean, the investigators knew that at least one of the men sitting in their holding cell was likely to be present at the robbery. But if so, then which one? And if both, how could they prove it? As you can imagine, neither Habas or Hassan was interested in owning up or pointing the blame at the other. This wasn't their first rodeo, after all. The two had a history of criminal activity dating all the way back to their teens. By this point, they were both 27 years old and well-versed in shutting their mouths whenever the police came knocking. The two were from a Kurdish-Lebanese family who had made their home in Lower Saxony, far to the west of Berlin, since the twins were just one year old. They had arrived seeking asylum, receiving a special kind of German-issued non-national passport as the Lebanese government refused to issue the proper papers to them. But Germany wasn't quite the safe harbor the family had hoped for. In a strange little coincidence, precisely 20 years to the day before the heist occurred, the twins received the news that their request for asylum had been denied. After 20 years? It's a bit harsh. 
By 2000, I mean, I, I guess they are criminals. So, yeah, don't be criminals. By 2009, they had been extending their permission to stay over and over for a full two decades. I feel inclined to interpret the date of the heist as some symbolic middle finger to the German state for turning them down after all those years, but there's nothing to particularly suggest that this was the case. There's a solid chance the twins never even knew the potential significance of that date. Still, though, maybe they weren't going out of their way to stick it to Daman, but it can't exactly be said that Habas and Hassan were model citizens either. The two were believed to be affiliated with a criminal gang in Berlin, Lynn with ties to prostitution, knife attacks, and drug dealing. That sort of stuff rarely features in the backstories of plucky movie heist artists. And wait until you hear this. Alongside convictions for theft and fraud, it was also reported that one of the twins was known as an illicit dealer of Viagra. I guess that'll either make him a more or less sympathetic figure in your eye, depending on your opinion of the little blue pill. I don't really feel... I feel indifferent to it. It is a drug. <laughs> I mean, like a legal drug. Unfortunately, the middle-aged men of Saxony would have to go flaccid for a while because, as I mentioned, their hookup was now being held in a police cell. Hassan and Abbas were picked up by police at a gambling arcade in the town of Rotenburg, uh, with one team not to be confused with the city of Rotenburg. There we go. I've never heard of either of them. Uh, they were both charged with burglary and faced a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. If the judge in their case set his sentence based on the monetary value of the crime, both brothers would likely get the whole shebang. The technicality, we can already guess what it is. Identical twins, same DNA. But as I've already warned you, when twins are involved, things aren't quite as straightforward as they seem. That's because when you have a pair of monozygotic twins like these, that's identical twins to you and me, they share almost exactly the same DNA. I think you might be able to predict what's coming next. See, the way DNA analysis works is by honing in on specific parts of the genetic sequence which show the most variation among individuals. That way, they can easily match up a sample to an individual with overwhelming certainty in most cases. But unfortunately, the vast majority of this useful DNA code falls within the 99.99% shared by identical twins. That meant that for all intents and purposes, Hassan and Abbas were basically indistinguishable on the genetic level. So there's no way to know which one of the twins the glove at the scene belonged to. A massive roadblock when you're trying to implicate someone beyond any reasonable doubt. Yeah, this is the thing. Maybe it's like, well, we're pretty sure it belonged to Habas or Hassan or whatever, but you've got to prove it beyond all reasonable doubt. And that is something that a defense lawyer is going to jump all over being like, yeah, you might, you might think, but are you absolutely certain? The twins' silence meant that the best officers could do was surmise that one of them had been present for sure, but that's as far as they could possibly go. In the immortal words of Johnny Cochran, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Well, in a twist of fate, the glove found at Kadawa did fit, it just fit two people, essentially rendering one piece of evidence pretty much meaningless. All of that, despite the fact that CCTV footage showed that two of the burglars were an exact match for the height, weight, and build of the brothers. The investigators were watching the tape feeling totally sure they'd already caught 66.6% of the criminals shown on it, but they were unable to do a single thing about it. I'm imagining them shouting some pretty intense German expletives at this point. Nobody does swearing quite like the Germans. That is absolutely true. Scheiße! Then they faced a further humiliation. On March the 18th, before any of this could be brought to trial, the case against the brothers was suspended and they walked free. As the judge in charge of handing out the dismissal said, from the evidence we have, we can deduce that at least one of the brothers took part in the crime, but it has not been possible to determine which one. What do you think? Was this a failure of the justice system or a reasonable bit of legal caution? Well, it's 
it's not a failure of the justice system. It's a failure of forensics or, you know, something unavoidable. And always, you know, the, the, the kind of maxim in, in law is that it's better for an innocent man to, to be, it's better, that it's, it's better for a guilty man to be uh, free than an innocent man to be in prison, which is why there is the, you know, beyond all reasonable doubt, at least in most countries for criminal crimes. I mean, it makes sense that the legal system wasn't willing to throw both in prison on what would essentially be a hunch, right? Imagine you have two identical twins, Klaus and Heimlich, because they're the first two German names I could come up with. Klaus is an upstanding citizen, a small-town accountant, while his doppelganger is a shotgun-wielding bank robber. It wouldn't be fair to send poor Klaus off to the slammer just because his DNA was found all over the scene of a robbery, and unfortunately it means that you can't send Heimlich down either, just in case Klaus really did fancy trying his hand at crime that day. It's unlikely... But even that little bit of doubt is enough to ruin a case. Nowadays, it would actually be possible to find genetic differentiation between the good and evil twin. Wow, I didn't even know. That's cool. But in 2008, the methods were still relatively expensive, imperfect, and invasive, and therefore inadmissible in German courts. The only thing that could have helped the case along was the discovery of a good old-fashioned fingerprint. Those distinctive marks develop in response to conditions in utero, meaning that even if two twins look exactly the same down to the last follicle of hair, they still have different fingerprints. In lieu of that crucial piece of evidence, the whole thing fell apart. The investigators had to plow through on trying to find another angle. Their last update on the case reported that they were actively pursuing a total of four suspects who were likely involved with the robbery, although no further evidence evidence has been uncovered. Can you imagine if when they were when they had that glove they were like, nah, don't worry about the fingerprints. We got the DNA evidence in here. And then they threw the glove. I'm sure they didn't. And then they just discarded the glove. But I guess guess they just can't pull fingerprints off the inside of a glove in this case. Um yeah. So those guys are still totally free. I don't know why they don't bring them back in and uh do that new genetic test. I'm sure that they can get a court order for that, find that one of them was definitely there. Although the other one who also was very likely to be there. He gets to go free. Further examples. Jesus Christ, you're thinking. I never knew that having a twin made you immune to prosecution. Why aren't we outlawing twins altogether? (laughs) Yes, no. Well, calm down, calm down. Despite what horror has taught us, not all pairs of twins are evil. And so, yes, some of them are pretty morally questionable. And Germany isn't the only place where they get a free pass on nefarious doings. For example, in 2011, a 19-year-old man, Sir Xavier Brooks, was killed outside a nightclub in Arizona. Despite the Sir honorific, I'm pretty sure he hadn't been knighted by old Lizzie, but regardless, he didn't deserve to be shot. Who names their kid Sir? Twenty witnesses saw it happen, but they gave conflicting reports about who did it. They described two identical twins who were at the club that night, distinguishable only by their clothing. Some pinned the blame on one, some on the other. The police were convinced that it was one of the brothers named Orlando Nembhard, so he did spend about four months in jail awaiting trial. But in the end, his $500,000 bail was reduced to $10,000, as there simply wasn't enough certainty to justify keeping him behind bars any longer. Likewise. In 2009, a man in Malaysia was acquitted because the prosecution couldn't prove whether he or his twin brother was the owner of a huge amount of opium and marijuana found in a house in Kuala Lumpur, which they had been staking out. Officers, if you're a young twin watching this, this isn't a guide to crime, okay? Don't do crime. Maybe get involved with magicians or, I don't know. There's got to be good opportunities for identical twins. Officers knew that one of them had the key, but they were unable to say beyond reasonable doubt which of the brothers it belonged to. The super hash bros wept and tugged each other when the acquittal verdict was read out, fully aware that one of them had just dodged the mandatory death penalty. Whoa. 
Oh yeah, it's Malaysia. <laughs> Don't smuggle drugs to Malaysia or anywhere in Asia. They'll probably kill you. There are countries where you go to the airport and there's just a big sign and it's just like, remember, <laughs> smuggling drugs carries the death penalty. And you're like, can you imagine walking in there with a bunch of drugs? You're like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. Why are you telling me now? These cases were down to old-fashioned mistaken identity, but when it comes to actual DNA evidence, there are plenty of examples of the twin problem too. Unfortunately, DNA evidence is a common fixture in sexual crime cases. So many of the examples come from this thoroughly depressing chapter of the Crime and Punishment textbooks. There's the 2005 rape case in Texas, which saw the jury stuck in a deadlock because the DNA matched twin brothers who had both kidnapped the victim. Oh yes, they were both clearly very guilty of kidnapping, but the same forensic technicality meant there was no way to prove both of them had participated in the sexual aspect, which was most likely the case. That probably makes you angry, and quite rightly so, but hold on a minute, because later we're going to be looking into some ways in which these loopholes might soon be closed for good. In the meantime, all you parents of twins listening in, keep an eye on the little monsters for all of our sakes. Aftermath Now let's get back to the story of Abbas and Hassan, which pretty much comes to a close where we left off. The final scene of our film sees them collecting the money from whoever... I'm. If someone writes a screenplay off this, I'll tell you where to send the check. This is such a good story. The final scene of our film sees them collecting the money from whoever they had hired to fence the loot, or maybe rolling open the shutter of a lock-up garage where six bags of jewels sit propped up against the wall. We'll never know. The statute of limitations for robbery lasts only 10 years in Germany, meaning that whoever was involved with the crime had been enjoying guaranteed freedom from prosecution since it expired in 2019. Can you imagine being those guys that was that new DNA technology? And they're like, come on, statute of limitations! The, throughout the whole 10-year period, the arrest warrants on the brothers were suspended. That meant the police couldn't even track their bank accounts or phone communications. Unless the crooks had physically led the investigators to the bags of jewelry, there was little that could be done. Understandably, this didn't sit too well with the German tabloids who accused the brothers of laughing in the face of justice. Do you blame them? I mean, to be fair, it is a bit <laughs> it is a bit funny, isn't it? After all, not for the jeweler, not for the police, and not for the abstract concept of justice itself, but, you know, objectively. Eventually, a photo of the twins was unearthed. They didn't quite have the Clooney-esque good looks we've come to demand from our master thieves, but reality rarely has the same polish as fiction. The pic shows one brother, I can't tell which one, which is precisely the problem with this whole affair, sitting with a slight smile on his face. He's resting his arm on the back of his twin, who's sticking his tongue out at the camera. And it's like, yeah, you know we did it. <laughs> Rather than leave some journalistic hacks to whip up a fire and brimstone caption to go along with their self-satisfied expressions, the twins gave them one ready-made one. In a statement released to the papers through a family member, the two said they were proud of the German constitutional state and very grateful to its legal system. That's about as sarcastic a middle finger as they possibly could have given. Yeah, that's, that, that is wild. The New Genetic Method there's one last thing to cover today before we wrap up. We're taking a short detour into the world of forensic criminology. Consider this part a warning for all of you twins, triplets, and quintuplets out there for who are considering embarking on a life of crime. Before you go investing in balaclavas and revolvers, you should know that modern science has been hard at work at plugging the gaps which Hassan and Abba slipped through back in 2009. As I mentioned before, the science was there back in those days, but it wasn't quite so refined as it is now, and the courts of 
of Deutschland hadn't yet integrated the most complex tests into its systems. Back then, it would have meant analyzing the entire genome of each individual to see if there were any differences caused by random mutations. However, this takes a hell of a long time, not to mention a fair bit of cash. German law was also quite cautious of allowing such extensive DNA testing, seeing as it's kind of a privacy and human rights nightmare. One forensics expert described it as a virtual dissection, which is not the sort of thing free countries allow, and modern Deutschland is no authoritarian state. They tried it once, it really didn't work out. <laughs> but around five years ago, a researcher at the University of Huddersfield named Graham Williams devised a simpler and much more elegant solution. See, even though we inherit our genetic material from our parents, it doesn't all stay completely stable throughout our lives. This is due in part to damage and mutations, but also something called epigenetics. I won't go into too much details because, well, I can't. <laughs> But what we need to know is that epigenetics is the study of the expression of DNA within cells, and by that I basically mean all of the things which essentially switch the various genes on or off. If DNA is the computer code, then epigenetics is the OS's way of reading it and loading the specific parts that it needs. This is why all cells contain all of our DNA, but we have so many different types of cells within the body. A liver cell is different from a skin cell because the body's OS loaded that particular part of the code. And not only that, these epigenetic changes are influenced by your lifestyle too. Everything from the way you exercise to your sleep patterns, which alcohol you prefer, and even which STDs you've contracted can cause changes in the way epigenetics chemicals attach to your DNA and alter its expression. DNA is fascinating. Genetics is fascinating. I, I wish I knew more about this. Now before I lose all of you non-chemistry geeks entirely, <laughs> you weren't losing me, Callum. I would I would read a whole thing on this. I'll get to the point. The way that this is used to detect differences between twins is surprisingly simple sounding. You melt the DNA. Graham Williams and his team were able to treat samples of DNA with a chemical which would react differently depending on the switch chemicals, the methyl group chemicals which would attach to the genes. Long story short, the resulting combinations had melting points which differ depending on the methyl groups attached to the DNA, which, as I said, differ depending on lifestyle and disease history. Essentially, this means that even when the actual underlying code is identical, different lifestyles yield different melting temperatures when the DNA material is treated in this way. So let's go back to Klaus and Heimlich for a moment. Say good guy Klaus is completely straight edge. He doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, and always goes out for a two-hour-long jog before work. Heimlich, on the other hand, sleeps until noon every day, eats greasy kebabs for every meal, and loves nothing more than a nice, refreshing bit of crystal meth. If you melted down the identical DNA of these two twin brothers, there would be more than enough variation in the epigenetics to yield conclusive results and exonerate lovely Klaus of any involvement in the great shotgun robbery of Deutschbank Dusseldorf. All in all, it would only take a few hours to do once you had samples from both brothers in hands compared to a whole month for the old school and more invasive methods. Hassan and Abiso would likewise face similar incriminating results, meaning whichever Klutz dropped his robbery glove would have faced some seriously difficult questions. The DNA in that glove could have been melted down and compared with a swab from each twin's cheek. If the Viagra dealer had been tucking into his own supply, for example, the epigenetic implications would ultimately be his undoing. So what I'm saying to all of you twins out there is, if you're planning on making money from your crime, just make sure that you live the exact same lifestyle as each other and you'll still have that get-out-of-jail-free card tucked into your back pocket. Vasan and Abbaso, they were likely one of the last few pairs of twins to ever stride out of prison simply because they were roommates in the womb. 
So there you have it, a mix of old-school heist charm and modern CSI magic. Hassan and Abiso may have been able to slip through this loophole in the German legal system, but it looks like any would-be copycat criminals surely think twice before planning their big score. Or maybe that's not the lesson you learned here, because there's actually a much more simple one. Don't drop your glove. Now on your on from the expiration of the statute of limitations, our pair of plucky thieves are free to enjoy their spoils without any fear of repercussions. So where are they now? Well, it's kind of hard to tell without a last name to track them down, but we do know a little about what they went on to do. Back in 2009, just two weeks after the heist and six days before the arrest, Hassan applied for permanent residency in Germany. Was that a hint that maybe there was something a little symbolic about the whole affair? Well, make of it what you will. Abbas, on the other hand, received an expulsion order. We don't know if he ever attempted to appeal it or if he's off living somewhere else. With millions of euros to his name, the world is his oyster. As for the crime itself, it's funny how much more we're likely to sympathize with the perpetrator when their methods match our Hollywood-tinged expectations. Sure, a carjacker might have taken off in someone's hundred grand Porsche, but the moment he clears a sick jump over a rising bridge, he has our full support. I also think it's important even more than that, whether they hurt anyone, like, or, you know, threaten someone's life. If they were breaking in and they shot a security guard and then robbed everything and shot another one on the way out, people are going to be like, well, screw these guys. But they didn't hurt anyone, and people generally don't feel sorry for the rich guy who owns German Harrods. Keep in mind, though, that Ocean's Eleven, this ain't. The murderous gang that these two belong to likely reinvested much of their ill-gotten gains into the sort of enterprises which don't make for such a feel-good film trafficking and attempted murder to be precise at any rate there's a bigger problem which we all need to worry about in 2007 it was reported that a total of 21,600 pairs of twins were born in germany by my reckoning they'll mature to high stage within the next five years lock your doors up germany and god help us all well they've got their new testing method also all of those twins are not going to be identical i'm not sure what percentage is identical but i'm fairly sure it's less because i don't know that many identical twins but i know several pairs of non-identical twins Anyway, dismembered appendices. Number one. If you're struggling to shift the sympathetic image of these two heist masters, here's an example of a violent tragedy in which one of their tribe was involved. In 2008, a 19-year-old stole a BMW in Berlin and ended up crashing it into an elderly person at Potsdamer Platz who died at the scene. The thief was a relative of Hassan and Abbas. Number two. Given how lucrative the 2009 heist was, it's little wonder that others have targeted Kadawa over the years. In fact, it experiences an attempted heist about once a decade or so. The 2014 one was a far less slick affair than ours. A group of thugs wielding machetes, hammers, and tear gas stormed into the Rolex section and smashed open the cabinets before taking off in a stolen car. Eleven onlookers were treated for tear gas injuries. Yeah, that's way less, you know, there's, there's less excitement there. Number three, after the story broke about the genetic technicality in the case of Hassan and Abbaso, a friend of the pair revealed that this wasn't the first time they'd taken advantage of having an indistinguishable look-alike. In fact, the two had shared community service hours in their youth, and if one had their driving license suspended, they would simply use the others instead. Even with all of our modern criminological developments, the system is still no match for the good old switcheroo. This has been another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I'm sorry nobody got murdered today. I mean, people did, but not in the main story, so sorry about that. I'm sure there'll be more blood in the next episode. I found this super interesting. I love the technicalities and the legal stuff. It's, uh, it's just very, very interesting, and I hope you enjoyed it too. If you're listening to this show on a podcast, wherever you get your podcast, please do consider leaving us a review, all of that good stuff. If you're watching this show on YouTube, or wherever you watch it, well, please smash that like button, leave us a comment below. 
And thank you for watching or listening. Thank <laughs> you.